All right. Please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. Today we're going to finish out chapter 1. Before we jump into the Word, though, I do want to uh, take a moment to acknowledge uh, that we now have our projector back. So you'll notice that when we're singing, it's not moving around side to side and bouncing up and down. And thank the Lord that uh, He was able to get our projector back. But He did that through the many efforts of our tech team, through uh, Larry and through, and through Dan, and I believe Cornell helped to get it onto the ceiling yesterday. So can we just encourage those guys and thank them for their hard work? There's always a million things that go into a gathering like this one, and uh, many of them you just don't see. And so we're thankful for all of the hard work for those people who make sure that we are able to worship seamlessly together on a Sunday morning in a way that is so exciting. So thank you guys so much for all the work that you've done. Uh, now that we have our attention here on 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, I would ask that if you do have your own copy of the Scriptures, please open it there. Even if you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to look it up on your phone. I want you to have this in front of you today as we're going to be looking at a text. I want you to know and to see that it is certainly there in your Bible. Uh, many of you were at the installation service that occurred here on September 19th. And one of the most significant moments of that evening was the part called the charge. That's the part where Ed Moore got up here and he gave a charge to me in which he called me to stand firm in the faith and to continue humbly in the ministry. And the words of Ed Moore that he shared were not only encouraging to me, but they have also served as a resounding standard from a man who I have seen faithfully serve in ministry for many years. So his charge is a convicting reminder of the race that I am to run faithfully regardless of the difficulty of the road that lies ahead in the unforeseeable future. But why do this? Why give a public charge? Why have this kind of service at all? Why give this in front of the entire congregation instead of privately? Why not just tell me these things? Simply put, because that is precisely what we see happen here between Paul and Timothy. He writes to him a charge that he acknowledges the entire church will read. We know that for certain because by the end of this book, all of the yous that he writes in here are plural, indicating he expects the entire congregation to be reading and hearing these words. He's going to lay out the bottom line at this point with a resounding standard for Timothy to live by. So join me now in your own copy of scriptures as we hear the charge entrusted to Timothy. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray now and ask the Lord to add his blessing to the preaching of his word. Father, we thank you so much again. We come before you a grateful people. We thank you that you have spoken, that you have not remained silent, that you have not been hidden from us, but you have revealed who you are through your word, and you have revealed what you require of us through your word. Now, Lord, as we gather together as the people of God, we want to worship you by hearing. We want to worship you by listening to who you are and what you have to say. And God, we pray that actively you would be working in us through the Holy Spirit now to give us ears to hear, to give us understanding, and to give us a strong zeal to apply what we hear this morning. 
Help us, Lord, as we consider some aspects of the functionality of the church today and some difficult things to understand today. I pray that you would help us to establish these things well so that we might walk in accordance with every word that your scripture teaches us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our time together this morning is going to be framed by the following three concepts that we are going to examine directly from the words of Paul. First, we're going to consider what it means when he says, waging good warfare. Then we're going to consider what it means to shipwreck your faith. And finally, we're going to consider what in the world he's talking about when he says to deliver sinners to Satan. Let's begin by considering what Paul means by waging good warfare. Now, although this is probably obvious and probably goes without saying, Paul is not advocating physical violence. Sadly, uh, although I say it goes without saying, these are things that we must say. He is not calling Timothy into military life. Now, I assume that you all know this. I assume that none of you are listening to him say, wage the good warfare, and you are deciding now to move away from your Bible on your phone and begin looking up some kind of a weapon to purchase. No, I don't think that's probably the direction that you've gone with this this morning. I assume that you know, but sadly, there are many people throughout church history that have argued that the kingdom of God would be advanced by armed forces and even through bloodshed. Just to guard this point and ground it in Scripture, consider how Paul explains Christian warfare in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments of every lofty opinion, Raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look, guns and grenades cannot accomplish the mighty feats that are mentioned here. I want you to notice that there are three distinct kinds of strongholds that Paul mentions that we are to affect in some kind of militaristic way. He mentions that we are able to fight the battle for holiness in our own minds, fighting against the strongholds of sin that we have trained our brain to entertain before knowing Christ. You know exactly what I mean. Before you came into the faith, you already had a pattern of thinking that you had developed. And now as a Christian, you have to fight daily to turn away from that matter of thinking and turn to obedience in your mind. For this, Paul uses the military concept of taking captives. Go take prisoners. Your thoughts should become prisoners. We are not out to take captives of enemy combatants. Our enemies are our own thoughts. They are coming from inside our own mind. And for that reason, we are to strengthen our faith by fighting our own fears and temptations that are formulated within our own minds. He also includes the militaristic word to destroy But we do not destroy buildings or cities or nations. We destroy every arrogant opinion that is leveled against the knowledge of God. This means that we as Christians should be committed to standing for truth as it is revealed in Scripture. A lazy-minded Christian is a disobedient Christian. And finally, Paul adds the idea of punishment. Now, just like in modern militaries, this is a reference not to those who are on the enemy's, enemy's lines, 
This is a reference to those who are inside your own ranks. This is a word used to describe the chastisement and the penalty for those who claim to be on your side, but they do everything that is detrimental to your cause. So Paul argues that part of the Christian duty in spiritual warfare is to punish every disobedience. Now, the reason that I have taken a brief excursus here into 2 Corinthians 10 is because all three of these forms of spiritual warfare are on clear display in our text this morning. Paul speaks to Timothy's mind and to blasphemers, and he speaks to the, uh, the issue of church discipline, or as he uses here, punishment. Now, this is true Christian warfare. This is the real fight. Paul reiterates that this very charge is once again declared to Timothy at the end of this letter in uh, chapter 6, verse 12, by saying, fight the good fight of the faith. Timothy, you're in a war, people of Gateway Church. You are at war. You are not at war with the other party that exists in this country. You are not at war with the people that you dislike in this world. You are not at war with your boss. You are not at war with family members, you are at war with sin and its effects in your life and in the church. And Paul says to Timothy, fight this good fight of the faith. And today we need to be reminded that we are called to fight this good fight as well. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, Paul reveals that he has been fighting this very same fight, and now he was coming to the finish line. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. May that be the words of our mouths someday when we come to that final day. But this is not something exclusive to Paul. It's not exclusive to Timothy. Every one of us is called into a lifetime of spiritual warfare against our own sin and against the sin of this world and against the sin that crops up within the body of Christ here at Gateway. One of the more mysterious aspects of this passage today is that little phrase you find that says, quote, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Now, there have been a lot of speculations as to the nature and the content of these prophecies, but there is absolutely no place anywhere in Scripture where these prophecies are revealed to us. We don't know who made these prophecies. We don't know if they were just about Timothy or if they were about the entire church. We don't know if these were spoken over him at his salvation or when he joined Paul or when he became the pastor or was ordained. All we know is that they were spoken over him at some previous time and that Paul knows these prophecies are legit. So you might be asking yourself, well, hold on a second. Didn't you just say that the reason we have a charge here for pastors when they become a pastor of a church is because Paul does that for Timothy and therefore we do those things? And yet, there are no prophecies that have been spoken over our pastor. If you believe that to be true, you are absolutely right. There are no prophecies that have been spoken over me by anyone about my ministry here at this church, nor will there ever be. And you might be asking yourself, why is it that we don't require some kind of a prophetic statement for someone to be a pastor. Why don't we require that and use this as a source text to see that as something that happens to those who serve in ministry? And the reason is very simple, because the gift of prophecy has ceased. Just like the gift of tongues, it has come to its conclusion. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 informs us that it will cease, and we no longer need this ministry of prophecy because we have something that the early church did not. We have the completed scripture. We have the perfectly revealed word of God that contains everything that we need for life and godliness. We no longer require God to continue to speak through utterance of people in that way. 
It should not be strange to hear the phrase where he continues on and says, holding faith and a good conscience. That should sound really familiar to you because we just recently spent three weeks learning about deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and in verse 7, it tells us that one of the requirements for a deacon is that he, quote, must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Since we've spent a good deal of time already on this concept recently, we're not going to focus a lot here today, but I would simply like to highlight the connection that Paul is making between warfare and our mind. Although faith can be greater than the realm of the mind, it certainly includes the mind. And your conscience is definitely an aspect of your mind that results in your conduct. So what is my point? Simply this. Christian, I want you to hear the clarion call to war. You are in a battle. You are at war whether you notice it or not. A terrible soldier is the one who ignores the enemy. You need to realize, just like Timothy That there is a call to action in your own life to wage good warfare. Hold fast to the faith. So when you experience doubt or fear or unbelief, don't just pretend it's not there. That enemy will destroy you. Don't run to distractions. Distracted soldiers lose. Those are surefire plans for failure. Fight intentionally for faith. Wage the good warfare. Now maybe you're saying, look, I, I, I just... I'm kind of clueless as to what you're even talking about right now. I don't understand this faith that you're speaking about. Well, let me share with you the good news of the gospel that we are told to trust in. The good news is this. Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the most simple declaration of who Jesus is that the early church adopted. Jesus Christ is Lord. That means that he is the absolute master and commander and ruler of my life. Jesus Christ is Lord. This Jesus has been Lord of all forever, yet he humbled himself, he was born of the Virgin Mary, he lived a life on this earth just like you and I, except he never sinned. The bad news is that you are a sinner, you fall short of the glory of God, you and I have all failed in every way to reach what Christ requires, perfection. Yet Jesus came and he lived perfection. He never once sinned in his actions, never once sinned in his words, never once sinned in his thoughts. He was perfect. Yet, Jesus died for imperfect, ungodly sinners like you and I. He died so that he might take the wrath of God and he might give us his righteousness. It is a perfect but unfair trade that he lovingly made for us so that all who believe in him, all who see that cross and believe will be saved. If you are here and you don't know about this salvation, I want to speak to you more today. Please don't leave without talking more about this with me. The greatest news of this is that not only did he die for our sins, he lives today to be your Lord and Savior. So I say to you, if you don't know what I'm talking about today, if you have not yet placed faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, today is the day to bow the knee and realize Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The second point of our focus this morning is this. Don't shipwreck your faith. Let's talk about shipwrecks for a moment. When traveling by sea, even today, shipwrecks in open water are often fatal to everyone. At least when you crash a plane, it usually lands on the land. But here in the water, what are you supposed to do? Everyone is in grave danger. Even those who do happen to get onto a life raft 
rarely find another ship nearby them before they die of thirst. So although there are always stories that pop up of people surviving in dramatic ways in the ocean, those survival stories are exciting because they are rare. If you are to swim at an average pace of an adult human from Australia to the United States, it would take you 2,466 days of swimming 16 hours a day. That's roughly 6.7 years of swimming all day, every day, with no food and no drinking water. That is impossible. Paul was never in the Pacific, and he was just in the Mediterranean, but the odds of surviving a shipwreck in the Mediterranean in their day were actually lower than the likelihood of surviving in the Pacific in our day. Shipwrecks were immensely deadly in the first century. This is why it should shock you to read Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 11.25 when he says, Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. Look, Paul was hardcore. I mean, seriously hardcore. If you or I were in a shipwreck, my guess is you're never getting on a boat again. Like, you will walk as far as you have to walk, but you are not getting back out on the waves. But what happens? He gets back on a boat. And what's most surprising about this is that this actually takes place, the writing of 2 Corinthians takes place before the most famous of Paul's shipwrecks near Malta, where we learn about that in the book of Acts. It is amazing that a total of four times this man survived what would almost certainly be a near-fatal crash. He survived four shipwrecks, so he is not using this metaphor lightly. Paul warns Timothy of the dire consequences of not holding fast to the faith in a good conscience. It is calamitous destruction. Timothy, the stakes are high. Gateway Church, do fight, because if you do not, the stakes are deadly. It's worse than a shipwreck. This warning is really important, and it helps us to see something very significant, that there is literally nobody above being warned. Imagine for a moment that you were to get a new job as a cashier at a grocery store. And the boss takes you over to the counter where you're going to be working and he says, here is your money tray. He puts it into the cash register for you. And he turns to you and he says, listen, the last two people who worked at this post are now in jail. Why are they in jail? Because they felt like they were able to every couple of days pull out a couple 20s and put them in their pocket. So listen to me very carefully. Don't do that. Don't even think about taking that money and putting it in your pocket. Don't even think about stealing from this store because if you do, you're going to be rotting in jail just like those other guys who were standing here before you. Now, most likely, if this is your first day on the job and somebody says, hey, look at me, don't steal, you're probably going to feel a twinge of bitterness towards that boss because you're saying, look, that guy doesn't know me at all. I would never do that. I would never have sticky fingers around this cash register. And yet he looks at me and says, don't you dare steal from me? Who does he think I am? Well, how much worse would it be if you had somebody who knows you better than anyone else in the world? Somebody who loves you, who has acted as a parent to you, who has helped to raise you, who has been in ministry with you, who says, listen to me very carefully, don't take that money. Well, here, this is the closest person in Timothy's life. This person, Paul, is the most significant figure in Timothy's life. And he says to Timothy, listen to me. You need to hold fast because if you don't, there's shipwreck coming. 
and he is warning this child in the faith, do not shipwreck your faith. Hear me clearly. And then he presents two people who have failed, and he explains to them, listen, these people failed. This is on the table for you as well. Do not stop holding fast. Paul's warning to Timothy to avoid shipwrecking his faith is a reminder that every single one of us, every person in this room, you and me, we need to be reminded again and again to call ourselves to humble faith and obedience to Christ. There are many people who profess the name of Jesus. They start off well. They get involved in church ministry. They start serving in children's ministry or music ministry or cleaning ministry or whatever. And they share their testimony at church. And they lose friends who want nothing to do with Christ. They read their Bible. They faithfully give of their abundance. They appear to be growing in Christ. But then some lingering sin creeps into their life. And all of those things that we mentioned, they just one by one cease. Their desire to serve fades. The love of the word and prayer are nowhere to be found. The the church becomes a burden to them. I just, I don't even feel like being there anymore. And more notably, sin is more delightful to them than Christ. That's a shipwreck worse than any literal shipwreck. It's the sinking of someone who professed the name of Christ, who has brought sin and devastation into their own life and into the church. One of the worst things about shipwrecks is the breadth of destruction is far greater than the one who makes the fatal error. The captain of the ship might be the one who steers it into a rock, but every person on board suffers. Perhaps you've seen that. When someone in the church loves the world and the things of the world and refuses to respond to rebuke and refuses to repent, the entire church is negatively affected. So Paul is pleading with Timothy not to shipwreck his faith. And through him, Christ is speaking to you and to me. Guard yourself against shipwreck of the faith. How do we do that? See point number one, wage the good warfare. But what about these two men who did shipwreck their faith? What happened to them? Well, that's our final point of focus this morning. We need to understand what Paul is saying when he tells tells Timothy that he has handed these people over to Satan. Let's first investigate these two men that Paul's speaking about. He mentions first Hymenaeus and then Alexander. Now, Hymenaeus is likely the man that is mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, when Paul writes, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who, I have, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Now, Hymenaeus was spreading heresy that was cancerously infecting the church and was shaking the foundations of people's faith. If this is the same man, which being that Hymenaeus was not a common name, it probably is, it is easy to see his error in doctrine and see how that was leading to ungodliness and living however people wanted. Belief is always the springboard into action, and good doctrine produces holiness. False doctrine produces ungodliness. But now, what about Alexander? What's his story? Well, this is where things get a little bit tricky, and here's why. Let's just consider a different name for a moment. Let's consider the name John. John is a common name because of John the Baptist and John the Apostle. For that reason, it became incredibly significant, starting especially when the Roman Empire legalized Christianity in the 300s. Consider for a minute minute this name and how it has spread. 
It is the most common name in America and in England and in Australia. But you might not realize that it is also common in other languages. From Latin, we get Johannes. From German, we get Johann and Hans. And the Netherlands transformed that into Hank. That's also where we end up getting the name Henry. The Portuguese, we get João. From Greek, we get Giannis and Yanni. From Italy, we get Giovanni. From Wales, we get Evan. From Scotland, we get Ian. From Ireland, we get both Sean and Shane somehow. From French, we get Jean. From Spanish, we get Juan. And from Russian, we get Ivan. From Lithuania, we get Jonas. And from England, of course, we get John. And for some reason, North England changed that into Jack. Meaning that anyone with the last name Johnson or Jackson, which are two of the most common last names in the English language, also are named after John. Not to mention the fact that literally almost all of the names that I mentioned above have female counterparts like Joan or Jean or Jeanette or Janet or Janice. So in a real sense, Janet Barricado, Jean Empert, Evan Langevin, John Holt, Jeannie Schultz, and Joan Hickman all have the same name. <sighs> And this doesn't include the fact that I'm not listing 70 different names or other derivations from Europe. And I'm not mentioning the hundreds of versions that are found in Africa or Asian languages. What's my point? Well, before John was the most common name, the name that was top of the list of every baby chart for centuries was the name Alexander. And why? Because of the massive influence and legacy of Alexander the Great. So it's very difficult to know if Alexander mentioned here is the same Alexander of the four other Alexanders mentioned in the New Testament. However, scholars suggest that if he is found anywhere else, the most likely match would be the Alexander the coppersmith found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, where Paul writes, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. That's all we know about this man from that chapter, if indeed it's even the same Alexander. So what do we know for sure about these men? Only this. We know for sure that they were blasphemers. And we know for sure that they had failed to hold fast to the faith and a good conscience. Blasphemy is an egregious sin whereby we use our words to reject God and reject his revealed truth. And because of their sin, Paul handed these men over to Satan. There are a couple of dangers to guard against at this point in the text. Christians have a tendency to fall in the ditch on one side of this path or the other. Some veer to the side of believing that Satan somehow is the equal opposite of God. They believe that he is capable of challenging God for the souls of the saints. They believe that anything bad that occurs is evidence that Satan has somehow gained power or an upper hand in his eternal struggle against the Father. It's almost viewed as kind of like this yin-yang being played out in a cosmic chessboard where we are the pieces. But none of this is true. Do not err on the side of believing that Satan has more power or authority than he's actually been allotted by God. If you have ever watched a professional basketball game, you have probably heard the slogan, no part of this broadcast may be reproduced rebroadcast without the express written permission of the National Basketball Association. You've probably heard that. If you've watched any sports, they have something similar. And you can't reproduce that without asking and getting written permission from that association. We learn from Scripture that Satan may not attack you or destroy you or test you or even tempt you without the express consent of God the Father. He is not all-powerful. He is weak. We see a brief moment of the divine counsel when Satan asked Job to put Job to the test. And Jesus also tells Peter that Satan has requested to sift him like wheat. 
Satan is certainly a roaring lion seeking whom he might destroy. I'm not saying that he is by any means weaker than we are. I am saying if you were to compare him to God, there is no comparison. He is on a leash that is firmly in the grip of a sovereign God. There is no equal power or authority or any other attribute for that matter. So be careful not to overestimate the devil and set your focus on him. But we must also be careful not to fall off the ditch on the other side of the road, which is to imagine that there is no enemy of our souls. Satan, the accuser of the brethren, is not yet in the final judgment. And as we will see, Christians are protected from Satan. But the notion of handing someone over, or quite literally to let go of the rope, means that we are declaring that Satan is their stated master. What happens when somebody gets saved? Colossians chapter 1 tells us that we are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. Who is the master of that kingdom? Satan. What does Jesus call the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23? And what do we hear John saying of the people who don't know Christ in 1 John? We hear that they are children of the devil. Before you know Christ, that is what you are called. Here's the point. When you get saved, you are moved away from this power of Satan and into the power of the kingdom of God. You are categorically different now. Here's the problem. If somebody comes into the church, the church acknowledges that they are saved, the church believes them to be saved, but then they begin to operate in a way that reveals they are not truly saved. They are acting like the world. They are acting like a child of the devil. They are acting like they still belong to the prince of the power of the air. They are acting like they are still part of the kingdom of darkness. What happens? We say, we acknowledge that this person is in the grip of the devil and the church lets go. What does it mean to hand someone over to Satan? Quite literally, it means to release them. It means to let them go, to let go of the rope and to say, we see on the other end the devil is the one holding this person. There is no language more extreme than this. It's just like when Jesus says to the Pharisees that you are children of Satan, to say to another person, we do not believe that you are redeemed, we believe you belong to the kingdom of darkness. It is a declaration that someone has revealed by their actions, you appear to be under the authority of Satan, so we let go. So what are we doing for the remainder of this service? We're going to consider three questions regarding handing someone over to Satan. First, what is its purpose? Second, what is its process? And third, what is the prototype we see in Scripture? In our text this morning, we see that the reason Paul handed these two men over to Satan was so that they might learn not to blaspheme. This was not intended for their evil. This was intended for their good. He does not want to destroy them. He wants to help them. When Jesus speaks of this process in Matthew 18, he tells us that it is for the purpose of winning back our brother from sin so that we might be reconciled. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 through 5, Paul gives us another example of this manner of church discipline when he says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, uh, Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. The man in question in this chapter was an illicit in an illicit sexual relationship with either his mother or his mother-in-law. And Paul demands that the church rise up and hand this man over to Satan. Why? Why does Paul say to do this? The purpose is so that he will repent of the sin, what he would repent of what has occurred in the flesh, 
and that his spirit might be saved. Nobody who lives that kind of lifestyle inherits the kingdom of heaven. Is that true? Yes, that's true. Nobody who lives that kind of lifestyle will inherit the kingdom of heaven. So what is the goal of setting this person out of the church? What is the goal of handing them to Satan or letting go of the rope? The goal is to bring about repentance, reconciliation, and restoration. But how does somebody get to that point that they are being handed over to Satan? How does that even happen, practically speaking, within the church? What is the process? Jesus outlines the process for us very simply in Matthew chapter 4. He gives us four steps. He tells us that we are to start with informal discipline, which is to simply go and speak to somebody who's sinning. You see something, you say something. Call them out. Tell them that they have done something that is offensive to you and to God. And if he hears you and repents, that weed of sin has been hacked off before it's been able to grow and spread. However, if that person does not hear you, take someone else with you and confront them once again. If they still do not hear you, step three, the process becomes much more broad. Jesus tells us that that next step is to tell the church, indicating that the church should seek that person out and call them to repentance. Here at Gateway Church, the way that that operates is if you need to come to this step, the elders are the ones that will bring it to the congregation, so please make sure we are informed if anything ever comes to that point where there is a refusal of the second step. And at that point, that is done in-house. That's what would occur privately at a business meeting where the church is uh, told the situation and told, please pursue this person, seek them out for repentance. And if they still refuse to repent... They are to be cast out of the church, or as Jesus puts it, you are to treat them like Gentiles and tax collectors having nothing to do with them. This is commonly known as excommunication. This is the same exact meaning as handing someone over to Satan. It is to set someone outside of the church because of unrepentant sin. So let's consider the prototype example that is most plainly visible in the New Testament. We've already touched on it. We've heard the circumstance. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the man who has that relationship with his father's wife. This is the most clear depiction of church discipline we ever see carried out in the scripture. You may notice that in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul does not require the people to go through steps 1, 2, 3, and then 4. He simply tells them, cast the person out, hand the person over to Satan. But why not? Well, the simple answer is because everyone already knew what was going on and they were tolerating his sin. Paul writes in verses 1 and 2, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife. And you, speaking to the whole congregation, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And when reminding them that they had failed to remove this sinful man, he adds in verse 6, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He refers to their lack and refusal of church discipline as boasting. Their refusal to hand this man over to Satan, he says, is a form of arrogance in the face of God. By minimizing the holiness of the church... They were minimizing their witness to the community, and they were maximizing the potential for more sin to arise within the church. That's the point of bringing leaven into the picture. Leaven, or yeast as we usually call it, is this imperceptible thing that when you first put it into a lump of dough, you can't even tell that it's there. But if you come back 30 minutes later, that ball of dough will become misshapen and, and large and bloated. Well, leaven is an Old Testament symbol for sin. 
It is a representation from the Exodus forward of sin. The imagery of sin sneaking its way into the church and growing and festering and spreading is clearly on display here. Do you not know that a little bit of sin comes in and infects everything? So Paul concludes this section in verse 13 by demanding, purge the evil person from among you. Now interestingly, we actually know that this happened and that it produced repentance. We read in the very next book, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6-8, through 8, of what most scholars believe is the same man being referenced in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Notice a few things here. First of all, notice that the discipline that was handed down on this sinful man, the handing him over to Satan, was not done by the decree of some pope-like figure, nor was it handed down just by the pastor or elders of the church. It was instated by the majority. This is one of the places where congregational polity is on clear display in the New Testament. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul was not just correcting the leaders of the church or the pastor of the church. He is speaking to the entire congregation for their failure to discipline that man. Now we see that he was set out by what? By the majority. In other words, it seems that they had a vote, just as we do when we have members gatherings. Secondly, the man has repented of his sin, and Paul is encouraging them to bring him back and to reaffirm their love for him. First, they were too passive to cast him out, and now they're being too hesitant to accept him back. Still, they were not understanding what the purpose of church discipline is, to bring about repentance and reconciliation. As the word reveals, church discipline done properly is a vital thing for the health and stability of the body. An undisciplined child will always push the boundaries of sin, bring shame to their parents, and become a nuisance to all of the people around him. And an undisciplined church will always push the boundaries of sin, bring shame to their Lord Jesus Christ, and become as worldly as the world, and in that way a nuisance to them. So church that I love, I charge you in accordance with the word of God, the word that you have been taught to wage good warfare, holding fast to the faith, and holding fast to a good conscience. By rejecting this, some people in our own midst have made shipwreck of their faith. You know their names. You can see their faces in your mind's eye. You love them. We have handed them over to Satan in the hope that they will repent and that they will be reconciled and that they will be restored. Let's ask that the Lord would help all of us to remain in his grace so that we might be able to join with Paul and say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And may we not fall in the same way as Alexander and Hymenaeus. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for every person in this room that you would help us to understand your word well, that we would be able to apply your word well, that we would able to be able to live your word well. Lord, I ask that we would wage good warfare against our own sin, that we would wage good warfare as we stand firm in the midst of a culture that is decaying, and that we would wage good warfare as we within the church stand for purity and seek to honor the name of Jesus Christ by pursuing accurate church discipline. We pray, God, that this would be a part of this church body and that we would enact these things faithfully and in accordance with the Scripture, never out of anger, never out of retribution, but always out of a love for seeking the best of both the entire congregation and the individual caught in sin. May we who are 
in that position to share with those who are struggling, with those who are fighting sin. May we always restore them with a spirit of gentleness. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.